Welcome to Go Gray Dame on Talk Zone. Dame is a title given to women, the equivalent to knight. This show honors our dames and inspires you to embrace your third act of life. Now, here's the host of Go Gray Dame, Renee Steelman. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Hey, welcome to Go Great Dame. I'm so glad that you have joined me today. And I want to remind everyone that this is a podcast for women who are thinking and wishing and praying for the support and the encouragement to live a life that is designed with them in mind, a life acknowledging their worth and gifts gloriously given to them to serve their fulfillment, as well as making the world a better and a fine place to exist. I am Renee Steelman, your host. I am not a trained theologian, therapist, or a life coach. My expertise can be found in simply life experience. My training is in interior design, which demands balance in not only your tablescape, or your bedroom, but also in your philosophies of life concerning both men and women. I have parented four boys and two girls and am now shamelessly indulging 14 grandchildren. Unfortunately, my shadow side sees truths in black and white. And my goal is to save space for all the Enneagrams of the world and to feed my need for empathy and understanding. That is definitely something that does not come naturally to me, um, and it is something that I am working on, and I often need reminded of. Because this path has no precipitation. I was raised by very narcissistic parents who dumped their children to pursue their own stages, and my gift was given to me, however, by delivering a baby 36 years ago that demanded 100% devotion and opened my eyes to the realness of life and set my truth meter on high. My heart was open to see others and to learn to cry and mourn with them. Reaching my late 60s and watching women being subjected and owned in 2021 fed my need to reach out and scream, go, go, Gray Dame. So my mission for this podcast is to announce to the world that she has become visible. Let me begin this podcast by telling a little of my story. You know, they say that you can only write what you know, and I only know my experience, which I admit is my story written in my ego and in my own mind, but for now, it is my truth. And I want to begin by sharing a wonderful message that was given by Roxane Gay in her book, um, Bad Feminist. I think it's really, really important because she is, um, she's talking about triggers. And I, I want to make sure that I start my podcast with the knowledge that I have absolutely no desire to offend. My my entire objective is to lift women up. And I have to tell you that I just have recently returned from attending two different conferences that were set up to help 
people who have left the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, commonly known as Mormons, to help them find identity and to help them find community. Two things that often people who have left that particular uh, high demand religion find themselves suffering the lack of. And in both cases, I was in a minority as a 67 year old woman. They, they, in both cases, they asked people to stand up um, with different demographics. Um, How many of you are here for this reason? Or how many of you are here for that reason? And when they got to, um, in one, one particular case of the conferences, when they got to asking the age of people that were attending the conference, there were probably out of 400 people, there were maybe four of us that stood up that were over the age of 60. And I think that's very telling. I think what that's saying is that women, oftenly uh, titled the boomer generation, women over the age of 60, and a, there were more women that were in their 50s, um, but primarily the demographics of that meeting were women uh, between 20 and 40s. And so when I saw that, I knew instinctively that there is a need to reach out to women who are in my age zone, who grew up in my time where women were thought of completely differently. They were spoken to completely differently. And to be honest, I believe the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints had doctrine and policies in mind that treated women completely differently. And that is how we were indoctrinated, how we were taught. And so there are not a lot of women my age that feel either comfortable enough to acknowledge that and to leave, or they have somehow absorbed it and have taken it as a truth. So, but one of the things that is always addressed, and I think, um, it's not a bad thing that's addressed, but it's triggers. And I felt as though Roxane Gay addressed this topic perfectly in her book, Bad Feminist. So let me read what she says. Roxanne says, trigger warnings are essentially ratings or protective guidelines for the largely unmoderated internet. Trigger warnings provide order to the chaos of the interwebs. They are a signal that the content following the warning may be upsetting, may trigger bad memories or reminders of traumatic or sensitive experiences. Trigger warnings allow readers a choice. Steal yourself and continue reading or protect yourself and look away. Many feminist communities use trigger warnings, particularly in online forums, when discussing rape, sexual abuse, and violence. By using these warnings, these communities are saying, this is a safe place. We will protect you from unexpected reminders of your history. Members of these communities are giving the illusion they can be protected. There are a great many potential trigger warnings. Over the years, I have been trigger warnings. I've seen trigger warnings for eating disorders, poverty, self-injury, bullying, heteronormativity, suicide, sizeism, genocide, slavery, mental illness, explicit fiction, explicit, explicit discussions, of sexuality, homosexuality, homophobia, addiction, alcoholism, racism, the Holocaust, ableism, and Dan Savage. (laughs) This is the uncomfortable truth. 
everything is a trigger for someone. There are things you cannot tell just by looking at someone. And she said, we all have history. You can think you're over your history. You can think the past is the past. And then something happens, often innocuous, that shows you how far you are from over it. The past is always with you. Some people want to be protected from this truth. I used to think I didn't have triggers because I told myself I was tough. I was steel. I was broken beneath the surface, but my skin was forged and impenetrable. Then I realized I had all kinds of triggers. I simply had buried them deep until there was no more room inside me. When the dam burst, I had to learn how to state those, how to stare those triggers down. I had a lot of help, years and years of help. And I love this because she kind of goes on to suggest that although this is kind of a new concept, giving people trigger warnings, that honestly, even using the term, this will be a trigger warning, triggers people. So I want to apologize if I do offend or, or, or if I do say something that triggers a reaction um, because I didn't even know that that term or that that feeling existed until I chose to resign my membership from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, commonly known as Mormon, which I will refer to as Mormon from this point on. Um, and I, because I didn't have a negative feeling about certain concepts. I had learned and I had been taught to absorb and accept things that created kind of a ick feeling in my stomach or created a feeling of dissonance. And I accepted that as a weakness in myself. So I didn't even acknowledge that this, that there could be what, what is now commonly termed a trigger. Now I hear it. Now I see it. Now I feel it. And, but I do like what Roxanne had to say, which was it often cannot be avoided. And we do have to find a way to live with this and to um, move on. So having said that, I do apologize if there are any trigger warnings. Um, I want to begin this podcast today. There was a challenge given that I will address in another uh, format But the challenge was that a very uh, well-educated, kind, wonderful man made a statement about the life of Joseph Smith, who was the founder and um, self-declared prophet of supposedly the restored gospel of Jesus Christ on the earth. Um, He did so back in 1820 something, and this was the beginning and the founding of the Mormon church and history and the internet and the wonderful world of knowledge that is available to all of us has brought out a lot of historical um, truths that have kind of found statements of Um, statements of things that could not be disputed before can now be very easily historically documented as untruths. And so this particular gentleman was saying, uh, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? Why can't you get over that? Why can't you just accept that there are truths and let go of the other part? And so 
we were asked to address that. And talking about trigger warnings, immediately I felt that emotional reaction when I hear especially white men of privilege declare, what's the big deal? And so it made me want to kind of put into some kind of order what my reaction to that was and what my thoughts are on that subject. So I wanted to go back to a um, talk or a sermon that was given back in October of 2015 by one of the apostles. Um, His name is Neil L. Anderson. He was speaking to a group of men. So I think that's important to acknowledge that he felt as though he was addressing men. And these are men, um, men and boys from the age of 12 up. And I think that is something right there where you're an apostle is addressing young boys of 12 with the same confidence um, status as the other men that were present that were 60, 70, 80 years old, that he was talking to them in a general term. So the examples that he gave were examples of life for men. But let me just talk a little bit about what he said. He said um, he was speaking specifically about faith. And he said, faith is not by chance, but by choice. He says, faith in Jesus Christ is a gift from heaven that comes as we choose to believe and as we seek and hold on to it. He then goes on to tell the story of Araldo um, Cavalcante, I believe. Uh, And this was a young man who was living in Brazil at the time. And sadly, he had lost his mother to cancer. And on her deathbed, she begged her son to care for his younger siblings as there were no relatives to help. The first thing that came to my mind when I reread this talk was, where's the father? Where's the father of this family? And why are there no references to his responsibility to the family? So that was one of the questions I had. Where's dad in all of this? There are four children, a mother that's dying of cancer. Why is father's presence or father's um, interaction with the family not, why is that detail being left out of the story? So during a talk he was giving in sacrament meeting, Geraldo felt very inspired that in spite of what his mother had asked him to do, he should indeed continue his goal of serving a mission. And the mission would be two years. He would be financially responsible to pay for this mission. And he also had been given and felt the responsibility to take care of his family. So a few years after he had given this talk and had felt this need that he, he really should continue to uh, pursue his desire to go on a mission, he um, uh, went to the bishop, got all of his paperwork done, and indeed did leave for his mission. He gave his brother instructions on how to withdraw the money uh, and to take care of the family expenses and to also take care of his mission. So the second question I had when he was giving that talk was how old was his brother? He had two younger sisters and a younger brother. He's now 23. So I'm assuming that his brother is, I don't know, anywhere between 18 and, and 21 or something like that. So obviously his brother uh, is uh, an adult. And who knows how old the sisters are, but they're probably in their late teens, if not in the, also in their 19, 20-year-olds. 
Um, so obviously these children were not toddlers. He wasn't given the instruction to take care of his three and four year old siblings. Um, and also did they have jobs? Were they contributing to the finances of the family? And then my question, my next question that came up was the church missionary fund helping pay for this young man's mission? Was the church helping to support the family in any way with food or, or financing their rent? Or how was the church involved financially? Those details were also um, left out of the story. So Elder Anderson goes on to explain that faith never demands an answer to every question, but seeks the assurance and courage to move forward. He then warns that when we immerse ourselves in doubt, fueled by answers from the faithless and unfaithful, it weakens our faith in Jesus and the restoration. And I will say, you bet it does. <laughs> it certainly does. Not necessarily in faith in Jesus Christ at all, but it does weaken our faith in the restoration. And I think that's really important because though there are quite a few people who have, after they have lost their faith in the church and the religious doctrine that was given to them, they have found themselves also questioning the existence of a God or the existence of Jesus Christ. But that, that I don't think any of those have anything to do with each other necessarily. It isn't a path that is laid out for those that choose to lose, uh, lose their faith in this particular religion. So with restoration being the key word, he then utters the now infamous quote, for now, give Brother Joseph a break. He contends that Joseph Smith, the self-proclaimed prophet and seer, and the one appointed by God, the one and only God, to restore the true gospel of Jesus Christ that was lost after Jesus was crucified and his apostles died, should be given a break because his follies historically recorded were 200 years ago, and we can't judge them by 21st century eyes. That is what he said. He then recommends that we look at Joseph's life in its totality before doubting his revelations and claims. But unfortunately, that is a perilous directive because it was the search for more information on Joseph Smith's total life experience that led me to resign my membership from the Mormon church. Without questioning Mr. Smith's honesty in other areas of his life, I want to concentrate on the continued misogyny and careless language continually uttered by today's prophets and apostles in the church. Because I think that we cannot forgive or claim that these beliefs or uh, policies or doctrines were things that were given 200 years ago and that are not being believed or continually taught today. And that is where I want to correlate the careless language with language that is being uttered today and continues to teach the same principles. So my motivation for this discussion uh, and what may some may consider precipitous decisions to walk away from 55 years of living in devotion to the teachings of the Mormon church was this newly discovered knowledge of just not Joseph's treatment of his wife and other women but the continued and sanctioned rape culture and privilege for men in the church. In Roxanne Gay's book, 
Bad Feminist, which was a compilation of essays that she had. I want to read to you again from the book. And on page 128, she perfectly tells the story of careless language and sexual violence towards women. But before I do that, let me go to page 154, because in this particular essay, which she has entitled The Spectacle of Broken Men, I want to, I want to start out by this description, because I think this, this goes along with uh, Neil Anderson's talk about giving men a break. All right. So this is what she says. Though I've lived all over the country, I've spent many years off and on living in Nebraska, both as a child and as an adult. Nebraska is Husker County. There is God and there are the Huskers and sometimes their order of importance is well, unclear. On game day, Memorial Stadium, Stadium is the third largest city in Nebraska. Even though he has long since retired as coach, a position he held for 25 years, there is Tom Osborne seated at the right hand of the Holy Father. He is the current athletic director at the University of Nebraska, Lincoln. He handily won his congressional district and served in Congress for six years. At the height of Nebraska football during the 1990s, Nebraska won the national championship in 1994 and 1995 and captured part of the championship in 1997. Osborne ascended somewhere above God. To Nebraskans, Tom Osborne is much like Joe Paterno is to the people of Penn State. Amen. In the 1990s, the unnecessary roughness of many Nebraska players was well known. Lawrence Phillips was probably the hottest mess on that team, always getting in trouble for one thing or another. His crimes, more than once, involved violence against women, but he was such a fine running back, and that mattered more than the women's face he threatened to break. In those years, Nebraska players were getting arrested so much, it was as if criminality had become a second-letter sport for the players. The media would half-heartedly question Osborne about these thugs, and he'd talk about how he was able to see the good in flawed men. More often than not, these players were forgiven for drug and alcohol infractions and assault and rape allegations because they could move the football down the field. They could fill Memorial Stadium week after week. They could take our team to the championship game over and over they could take us to church. Amen. Nebraska certainly was not and is not unique. Neither is Penn State. College and professional athletes get away with all kinds of criminal behavior, and we must be comfortable with that criminal behavior because week in and week out, we tune in to the football games and baseball games and basketball games and hockey games that showcase broken men carrying the hopes of millions on their backs. We cheer and buy jerseys and make rich men or soon-to-be-rich men richer. When the truth about Jerry Sandusky and the Penn State football game program was revealed, we were outraged, and rightly so. But there's plenty more to be outraged about where athletes, coaches, criminality, and silence are concerned. We live in a culture where athletes are revered and overlooking terrible criminal behavior is the price we are seemingly willing to pay for our reverence. Amen. Is that not beautifully stated and perfectly explains 
the idea of looking past the flaws of men and condoning their behavior and if if the results of their behavior serves the purposes of a few rich people, um, corporations, religions. I mean, where do we begin? We look at other religions. I recently saw the movie Tammy Faye, and I look at um, all of the hierarchy that were that were in those um, very uh, fundamental Christian religions and how the frailties of the men were overlooked for the goodness that they um, that they had talked about. So um, let me now, let me now go back to the chapter that I referenced before because I think this plays into what um, Anderson said when when uh, Roxanne Gay in this book was talking about the careless language of sexual violence. This was um, her story. There are crimes. And then there are crimes, and then there are atrocities. These are matters of scale. I was shaken by an article in the New York Times when an 11-year-old girl who was gang-raped by 18 men in Cleveland, Texas. The levels of horror to this story are many, from the victim's age to what is known about what happened to her, to the number of attackers, to the public response in that town, to how the story was reported. There is video of the attack, too, because this is the future. The unspeakable will be televised. The article was entitled, Vicious Assault Shakes Texas Town, as if the victim in question were the town itself. James McKinley Jr., the article's author, focused on how the men's lives would be changed forever, how the town was being ripped apart, how those poor boys would never be able to return to school. There was discussion of how the 11-year-old girl, the child, dressed like a 20-year-old, implying that there is a realm of possibility where a woman can ask, a woman can ask for it, and that's it's somehow understandable that 18 men would rape a child. There were even questions about the whereabouts of the girl's mother given as we all know that a mother must be there with her child at all times or whatever ill befalls the child is clearly the mother's fault. Strangely, there were no questions about the whereabouts of the father while this rape was taking place. And so she continues on to tell the story of how the fact that an 11-year-old baby girl was raped by 18 Men, I believe the ages were somewhere between 18 and 26, um, that that really was put to the side. And it was the life of the men that were more considered and that the uh, division that it was causing in the town was was more um, decisive. So I had to go back to if someone were to ask me, What was it specifically that caused your shelf to break, that caused you to not be able to to doubt your doubts or to believe any longer and to look past and give Joseph Smith a break and the other doctrines and policies or words or sermons or careless language that has been given um, over the pulpit to young women, mothers, older women, um, even in 
I, I must remind people, even in our temple sacred ceremonies, women were degraded. Women were given a, a lower level of humanity. And we bowed our heads and said yes to that teaching. And though that was changed hundreds of years later, it does not excuse what I was taught as a woman who went through the temple ceremony in 1974. And as a young 20-year-old girl, I didn't hear even what I was agreeing to because my culture had taught me already what my role was and my religion was just confirming it. And I want to quote um, another beautiful book I really highly recommend you get. Um, Luna Lindsay Corbden is an amazing, um, uh, an amazing author and research uh, person. And she, in her book, um, Recovering Agency, it's, it's not an easy read, people. This woman is brilliant. And the detail that she goes to is, um, it's, it's, it's almost like a textbook. It's so brilliant. But she talks a little bit about exploited human tendencies. And let me quote from her. She said, the fields of cognitive science and behavioral psychology study why people believe and act the way they do. We can learn much from their experiments, studies, and theories. Airplanes seem to defy the law of gravity, but in fact, wings manipulate the laws of fluid dynamics to work around gravity. Likewise, many mind control techniques can seem like magic, but in fact, are leveraging ordinary human tendencies. As human beings, we are disposed, predisposed with certain traits that help us thrive and negotiate with others. These social instincts aided the survival of our ancient ancestors. In modern times, they make us more efficient, save time and energy. There are decision-making shortcuts and automated assumptions to help us organize and make us efficient and give society a stable framework. Um, she quotes Robert Caladini, a compliance researcher and author of Influence, and he says, if rather than worrying along in accordance with our prior decisions and deeds, we stop to think through the merits of each new action before performing it, we would never have time to accomplish anything significant. The drawbacks of such, such automatic reactions is that they make us fallible, while simultaneously giving us an illusion of correctness. Worse, these traits can be exploited and manipulated by cunning individuals and groups. Science is beginning to understand these cognitive structures to learn how we become persuaded by and retain long-term beliefs. These tools can be used to teach, liberate, entertain, build monuments, and to create a peaceful society. Or they can be used to abuse, deceive, oppress, imprison, and to incite war. So if we go to the science and we go to the um, beautiful knowledge that we have uh, retained over the years and we have attained over the years, we learn parts of society. We use persuasive tool or we've learned persuasive tools that are used by high demand religions and um, other cultural teachings that 
do create a sense of order, uh, no doubt. My daughter lived in China for a long time, and I visited her when she was living in Beijing. And when you have a complete society that agree, um, however that is um, uh, forced upon someone, whether it is done um, by choice or whether they are just obliged to agree with certain things, there is order, no doubt. There is order. Um, <clears throat> but unfortunately, it is can also be abused. And so my role as a woman was very decidedly and very specifically given to me in a religious ritual. And I covenanted and agreed to obey that teaching. And it took me long enough for my brain to develop. It, I had to have lived experience and I had to have um, uh, the ears to open and hear other people's stories to finally start to go, I don't, I don't know if I agree with that. I, I think there's something wrong here. So when I began to question some of the doctrine and I did start to research and learn um, historical truths that were given to me, uh, one of the first books I read, which was in the late 80s, right after it actually came out, um, Emma, Mormon Enigma. And that was the first time I had even acknowledged Emma as a person into the story of I have to tell you that that is where um, I think on it. So I want this, this particular podcast is just, just a message. As we enter this time of um, celebrating the birth of Christ, which by the way, is a pagan holiday that the Christians adopted. I just want you to know that <laughs> so, um, as our, is Easter and some of the other pagan holidays that we celebrate. Um, as we enter into the wave of um, Christianity and giving thanks for what, what is taught as the time of the birth of Jesus um, and uh, the things that are taught, the sermons that are given, I think it's a very hard time of year for a lot of people. But also, I want to acknowledge the work and the effort that the women of the world put forth during this time the gifts that are purchased, the decorations that are put up, the um, clothing that is purchased, the food that is prepared, the, 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 the keeping the story of Santa alive in the children's lives, all of these things that the world and the families embrace as the best time of year, Thanksgiving and Christmas. If you really look at who is making this happen, you must look to the women of the world and what the women are doing. And it's interesting. I was just speaking with a friend of mine whose mother is about my age. And she said, you know, it's really funny because about two years ago, my mother put her foot down and she said, you know what? I'm tired of this. I want to enjoy Thanksgiving too. I want to sit in the family room and watch all of you enjoying yourselves. I want to be with my children. I don't want to live in the kitchen. So let me tell you what's happening. I'm fixing a turkey. And if you guys want anything else to eat, it's up to you. And, and it was it, this woman was in her 60s before she put her foot down. And, and that is what I'm finding. So my call is whatever, whatever you're feeling. I, I listened to some other podcasts of people who are just holding on by the skin, skin of their teeth, just by their fingernails to stay in the faith. 
and they are so relieved when they hear other women tell their stories that they have secretly kept inside. But I don't, and this is my shadow side, I don't understand how you can sit and continually listen to policies and talks like what was given by Brother Anderson to say, give Joseph Smith a break. And it's like, somebody needs to stand up for Emma and say, you're amazing. What you did was amazing. And if you want to talk about the women who supported the apostles, uh, when Jesus walked the earth, the financially, the women that supported him. If you want to talk about Mary Magdalene, who escorted Jesus and was with the apostles and who taught the apostles, but is given no mention of her apostleship. If you want to talk about the females that read the house of females and talk about what polygamy did to the women, start listening to the women. Let's listen to the women's voices. Hopefully that will give you the voice that you need to finally stand up and say, enough, enough. I am going to start demanding that I also be included in this family and that you all have to participate. So when I title my podcast, Go Gray Dame, I am urging you, whether it's letting your hair go gray, whether it's choosing to wear clothing that you love, whether it's choosing to not attend uh, some kind of activity because you've decided to attend an activity that fills your soul, whatever it takes. I'm not saying become a narcissistic, selfish person. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's okay to be yourself legitimately and and visibly to the world and let the world acknowledge that you have become visible. Those are my words. Please go into this holiday with happiness and joy, but also finding yourself and delegating typical, what is typically considered female activities, delegate those activities, doggone it, and um, have a great holiday. I know I promised that I wasn't going to do anything before uh, after Thanksgiving, but I just couldn't help myself after attending these last few conferences and seeing how my age group, my demographics was not being represented. And yet I'm hearing their voices in comments and on other podcasts saying, thank you for saying that. I didn't have enough guts to say that. I didn't think I was, I thought I was the only one that felt that way, but they're still hiding. So my, my call, I'm issuing a call for women to stand up and and voice, find their voices. Do that. That will be, this will be the best Thanksgiving of your life. So thank you so much for listening to my rant today. I hope that it really was encouraging. I hope that it gave some of you older women a little bit of encouragement to find your voice. Have a great holiday and go Gray Dame.